two passages this morning, uh, Galatians chapter 6, verses 14, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. So Galatians chapter 6, verses 14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who calls you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of God. Amen. Well, good morning. If I've not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Bijan, the pastor for our church. And today is week three of our sermon series, exploring what the Bible says about work, your jobs, your career, your vocation. We also said a few weeks ago, I just want to remind you that when we use the word work, according to the Bible, Work is sometimes the things you're compensated for, but work includes things like your passions, your hobbies, maybe volunteering, maybe you're supporting a startup. Work includes all of that, the things we do with our life, the things we give ourselves to. And what we said at the beginning of our series is this uh, sermon series is like chapters in a story, four chapters, and each chapter matters. So, Two weeks ago, we started and we said, chapter one, God is the maker of work. And work is good. Work is meant to be a gift from God. And yet, chapter two, we saw last week that when human beings rebelled against God, when they turned from him, what the Bible calls sin, sin spoiled everything. And that includes our work. And so for many of us, when you show up at work or in the passions that you have in your life, Work doesn't feel good, it feels frustrating. It's difficult. And so that's the tension. Chapter one, God makes work, it's good. Chapter two, work is hard. Work is filled with frustration and futility and idolatry. So the question is, how do we live in that tension? Is there any hope? Is there any way our work and our experience of our work can be healed? And that's what chapter three is about. Today, we're talking about the renewal of, of work, how the gospel changes our work and our approach to work. So here's what we're going to do today. First, I want to show you what the gospel does. That's going to be the foundation for our sermon. What does the gospel do? And then after that, I have four things to show you about how when the gospel's at the very center of your life, it can change your work in profound ways. So what the gospel does, and then four things, let me give them to you briefly, If the gospel's at the center of your life, we're going to get a new motivation for our work, a new perspective at work, a new posture in our work, and then finally a defiant joy when things are hard. That's what's in front of us. So let's take a look. First, what does the gospel do? Now, in a sentence, the gospel changes your boast. The gospel changes your boast. Jasmine just read to us from Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. Let me read the first sentence again. The Apostle Paul says, 
may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel did for Paul. It changed his boast. In the Bible, to boast is much more than to brag. You know, sometimes we think of boasting as bragging. But biblically, to boast is something much deeper, much more profound than that. When you boast in something, what you're doing is you're connecting your identity to that thing. Your sense of worth, your meaning in life is connected to the thing that you're boasting in. I use this example a lot here at RCL, so if you've heard it before, I apologize. Unless you forgot, then here it comes again. I am a baseball fan, classically American, I know. And, you know, occasionally I'll search my favorite team online and I'll watch highlights of the game from the night before. And invariably, I have a kid next to me as Mayor Oliver, so we're watching the highlights. And if my team wins, at the end of the highlights, I say to Esmeir Oliver, we won. Now, they don't care, but I say, we won. And if we lose, sometimes I don't even watch to the end because I'm just frustrated. And I say, we lost. What's happening? We won? I had absolutely nothing to do with it. Literally nothing. And yet what's happening in that moment I'm boasting. I've connected something of myself to my team. And when they win, I feel like I've won. And when they lose, I feel like I lost. And that biblically is what boasting is all about. It's connecting your identity, your sense of self to something else and then getting meaning in life because of that attachment. And every human being boasts. You cannot live in this world and not have something you're boasting in. Actually, there's really only two kinds of boasts. There's boasting in an identity that you achieve for yourself. Or there's boasting in an identity that you receive by grace. And those are the only two options. Paul experienced both. He's a unique example of someone who was able in his life to compare those two boasts. And so let's take a moment to reflect on Paul's own story. Paul, by outward circumstances, before he met Jesus, was an incredibly impressive person. Paul was someone who had a CV that you would dream of. He came from the right family. He went to the great schools. He had a job with authority and with power and with status and reputation. He was also a moral, a very religious person, the kind of guy you would hope to have as a neighbor. Paul was someone who, by outward appearances, was really put together. But inwardly, he was spiritually and emotionally restless. Why? Because his meaning in life, his identity was based on his achievements, the schools he went to, his religion and his morality, his job and his influence. And friends... Just like Paul, any time your identity in your life, your deepest meaning is built on the things that you achieve for yourself, your identity is always fragile and susceptible to being broken. It's always teetering on the edge. Think about it. You know this. If you're a person who gets your deepest sense of self because of your achievements, your accomplishments, your performance, isn't it really hard for you to handle any criticism you know, you know you're not perfect. We all need criticism. That's how we grow. That's how we change. 
But if your meaning in life, if your identity is built on your performance, when someone criticizes you, either you get very defensive. You don't understand. You don't get it. What do you know? Or you're plunged into despair and you feel like you have no reason to live. You see, if your identity is built on your own performance, your identity is completely fragile and you're always susceptible to it teetering over. Not only is your identity fragile, but you're always going to be exhausted. Because if your identity, if your self-worth is based on what you do, then the nagging question that will follow you always is, have you done enough? Or should you do a little bit better? Should you try a little harder? Should you be a little more connected? Should you be a little higher on the ladder at this point? And on and on and on. And what Paul's saying, I used to look at myself and outwardly I was really impressive, but inwardly I was a wreck. And I could never rest. And my identity was so fragile. And now he says, something has happened. I've encountered the grace of God, or should I say the grace of God encountered Paul. And now he says in verse 14 of chapter six, may I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. What Paul's realized is to be a Christian, to have the gospel at work in your life is for the reality of Jesus's death to become the center, the animating principle of your entire life. That's what Paul says is now where he gets his deepest meaning. That's where he gets his ultimate identity. His self-worth is connected to Jesus's death for him. What does the death of Jesus tell us? Well, think about it. The cross, the fact that Jesus died for his people, says to you, if you trust in his death, that you are at the same time seen to the bottom and yet loved to the sky. You see, the cross says that your sin, your rebellion against God, that selfishness in your heart was so deep that the only way God could forgive you is through the death of Jesus Christ. And yet the Bible also tells us that when Jesus went to the cross, he went with joy, not duty, but delight because of how much he loved you. As my old pastor used to say, the fact that Jesus died for me humbles me out of my pride. But the fact that Jesus was glad to die for me, it assures me out of my fear. You see, the cross tells you that you are a much greater sinner than you could have ever imagined. And yet you are more loved than you could have ever dared believe. And friends, are you beginning to realize if the cross, if Jesus's death is at the center of your identity, do you realize how safe and secure and stable of a person you can become? On one hand, you're able to look at your life and when you see fear and guilt and shame and regret, you're able to say, yeah, I see that. I don't have to hide it. I don't have to pretend. And that's what Jesus died to pay for. That's what Jesus died to cover me. And so you can be at the same time honest about your brokenness and also to be able to say, the cross tells me that I am loved, that I am delighted in, and that there is a love that will never let me go. It's a love that is unshakable and unstoppable and unquenchable and undying. And nothing will ever take me from its grip. You see, when the cross is at the center of your identity, if that's your boast, you're safe. You have an identity that can withstand anything. 
You have an identity that enables you to move into any situation, to any circumstance, and to experience peace and poise and comfort because you know at the same time, God's love reaches down into the bottom of your soul and lifts you up to the sky. So I ask you, do you know anything of it? Chances are for most of us, even if we're Christians and we've been Christians for a long time, we're not boasting in the cross as much as we should. But this is what the gospel does. It produces a sense of self and an identity that's safe. Paul says, may I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus. Here's the question now for the rest of our sermon. If the cross is your boast, if the animating center of your life is Jesus's death for you, then let's unfold the implications of that and ask, how does it change our approach to our work? The gospel changes everything. How does it change the way we work? So let me give you four things, relatively briefly, but four things. First, the gospel will give you a new motivation. It changes why you work. We said this a couple of weeks ago, that apart from the gospel, work is either drudgery or idolatry. It's drudgery. Many of you, honestly, go to work and you hate it, or maybe you barely tolerate it, but you know that you need money to live, and so you just show up and you do the bare minimum to make the money that you need to do everything else that matters to you. And work is basically a drudgery. But on the other hand, there are some people, and sometimes in our own hearts, this can be the same day, where work moves from drudgery to idolatry. Where work is not just a grind, work becomes God. Work becomes the way you get meaning in life. And friends, can you see, I hope you see this, that in both instances, whether you live for your job or whether you loathe your job, in both instances, you're just using your job to get something. Work becomes a means to an end. You're using your job to get something. But remember how God makes work. He makes it good. And what the gospel does is it comes in and it can renew your motivation such that work is not just a grind, nor is it God, but it becomes something that's a gift you give back to God and to others in worship. Work can become worship. And of course it is because the gospel says that on the cross, Jesus gave everything for you. He, he literally held nothing back. His arms were fully open in surrender, giving himself completely up in sacrifice. And if you see that, if that truth is the animating center of your soul, then you say back to him, all to Jesus I surrender. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And everything we have and everything we can give and everything we do becomes an act of worship, a response to the one who's given us his all. And friends, do you begin to see if that's your approach to your work, do you realize what kind of freedom you would have? No longer is work just a way to get money, nor are you looking to your work to save you. Now, if the gospel's at the center, work can just be work and it can be Good. It can be a way that you worship God, but also that you bring beauty into the world and serve others. I'll give you this example. Some of you may know John Coltrane, not personally, but John Coltrane was an American jazz musician in the 20th century. And if you're into jazz, you know he's very, very good. And kind of in the middle of his life, he had a spiritual awakening. He describes a moment where the grace of God met him. 
Now, till that point, Coltrane is a very accomplished musician and very successful. But he looked at his work to save him. He looked at his work for his meaning in life. Making music was what he lived for. And therefore, he never really enjoyed the music because it was too fraught. He was putting too much of his weight on it to heal his soul. But he says in 1957, he encountered the grace of God, or rather the grace of God encountered him. And he says from that moment, his whole relationship to music changed. And he described his experience in the liner notes. If you don't know what liner notes are, get an encyclopedia and look it up. These are the notes that used to be in vinyls. In the liner notes to one of his albums written after that time, he says this. During the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening, which was to lead me to a richer and fuller and more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and the privilege to make others happy through music. I feel that this has been granted through God's grace. So this album is just a humble offering for him. It's an attempt to say thank you, God, through our work, even as we do so with our hearts and with our tongues. He was still an excellent musician, but his relationship to his music changed. It wasn't something that was his God anymore. It was a way to say thank you to God. When the gospel's at the center of your life, it changes why you work. And all your work, no matter your work, can be a way that you say thank you to God and you serve others, a new motivation. Second thing though, and briefly, the gospel also gives us what you might call a new perspective in our work, a new perspective in our work. Jasmine, when she read, also read from 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. And there, Peter says to Christians, you are a chosen people and a royal priesthood. Now, when you read that, it's possible you fly right by, but in the first century, If you hear Peter saying that every person in the church is a priest, you are stunned. You are stopped in your tracks. Because persons then would have thought in the Old Testament, priests were a very select, small group of people who were able to access the presence of God in the tabernacle and temple. Of all the people of God, only the priests could go into the holiest places for worship. They had close connection to God. Everyone else was kind of on the outside. And the priest's job, therefore, was to represent God to the people, to say, this is what God is like. And also the priest's job was to represent the people back to God in prayer and in service. So the priest was kind of a mediator between God and people. And now here comes Peter. And he says, look, Jesus died. The veil that separated people in the temple, that veil was torn down. If you're a Christian... You have access to God without restriction. You're a priest. Do you know what that means? Wherever you go, whatever you do, including your job. Now, your job might be at a workplace. It might be via Zoom. It might be in your home. It might be serving somewhere in the city. But wherever you go, you're a priest. And that means you are called to represent God to the people that you work with. You are called to represent the values of God, the kingdom of God in your workplace and with the people around you. And also you're meant to carry those people back to God in prayer. And so practically, what does this mean? 
in your workplace, let's say you have colleagues or you work with other people, is there something different about the way you work? Is there something of the divine that comes across in your character? Is there something about the way you relate to power and the way you use your words and the way you do your work that shows people around you, this person is different. This person has a kind of peace and a joy and a poise, is able to speak truth and love. That's unlike the other people around me. Are you representing God to the people you work with? And at the same time, are you representing those people back to God? Are you praying for your colleagues? Yes, God, break their teeth. No, not just that kind of prayer. (laughs) Are you bringing your industry and your workplace back to God in prayer? Are you seeking renewal where you are? You're a priest. So much more I can say about that, but the gospel gives a new perspective. Third, the gospel will give you a new posture at work. A new posture. What do I mean by that? If you come back to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14, Paul says, May I never boast except in the cross by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That means, according to Paul, that when the gospel's at work in your life, the values of the world are reversed. You see, the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. Think about Jesus. How does he win? By losing. Jesus's triumph looks like defeat. Jesus has power, but he gives it away. Jesus is the one who's infinitely rich and yet for our sakes becomes poor. And the kingdom of God is a kingdom in which the values of the world are reversed. In which God's people who are shaped by the cross, now we win by losing. The greatest are those who become servants. We use our power not for self-advantage, but to serve others. The kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom in which the humble are exalted and the proud are brought low. (laughs) Think about what that means at your work. What if we were able to be a people who went into our work and saw a reversal of the world's values? Practical application. For some of you, the hardest thing about your job are the people that you work with. If there were no other people there, you'd love it. But there are. The gospel speaks to that. The gospel wants to speak to those relationships, to the relationships you have with those difficult colleagues and that demanding boss and the shareholders and stakeholders that are invested in your company, whatever the case might be. And the gospel wants to renew those relationships by first enabling you to be a servant. Maybe you have authority and power in your workplace. How are you humbling yourself? How are you using that authority and power not to exploit, but to empower the people around you? Maybe there's someone in your workplace that you have to have a difficult conversation with. Now, most of us, when it comes to conflict and difficult conversations, we're on two extremes. Some of us are all truth. We just love to tell people how it is. And other of us are all love, or we think it's love. We don't want to rock the boat. But what does the gospel do? If my identity is secure in Jesus, then I can speak truth in love. I can say hard things when they need to be said, but I can do so from a place that's not out to get revenge or vengeance or make someone feel bad, but I can speak what's needed in the moment to produce health and wholesomeness in a relationship or in a company. You see, the gospel turns the values of the world upside down in which we become servant leaders. 
humble people, a new posture in our work. And finally, lastly, the gospel gives us defiant joy when things are hard. Now, admittedly, on this point, I'm talking about work, but I'm talking about everything. Some of us need to hear this this morning. Life is really hard, and work is really hard. Sometimes, well, Martin Luther King Jr. said it this way, her, uh, adversity assails us with hurricane force. Some of you are living in that right now. You're living in a storm. You're living in profound pain. The gospel is able to give you a defiant joy, a kind of joy that can look the storm in the eye and say, do your worst. Joy is going to win. Why? Look again at Galatians 6 and verse 14. Paul says, I'm not going to boast except in the cross. The thing that's going to give me my meaning in life is the fact that on a little hill outside the city of Jerusalem, a man who was around 33 years old was crucified. Now, the cross in ancient Roman times, it was not a piece of jewelry. It was a symbol. It was the sign of capital punishment for convicted criminals. It was scandalous. It was shameful. Not only was it physically incredibly agonizing, but it was the most humiliating, embarrassing way to die, just hanging there with everyone walking by and mocking. And Paul says, that, that's where I get my meaning in life. That's where I get my ultimate sense of who I am. Why was Paul able to say that? Because Paul knew that the cross was not the end of the story. Three days after Jesus died, he rose from the dead. Resurrection. Now, we don't have time to get into the resurrection today except to say this. At the heart of reality, if the gospel is true, then Good Friday leads to Easter Sunday. Death leads to life. Resurrection overwhelms death. And that core principle at the heart of the gospel becomes the pattern for the entire Christian life. And you know what this looks like in practice? The Apostle Paul in another place, right? He says here, my boast, the thing that gives me my meaning in life, it's the cross. In another place, Paul says, as he's describing his life, talking about who he is, he says, I am sorrowful and always rejoicing. Is Paul, are you happy or are you sad? Yes. I am sorrowful and always rejoicing. Thomas Watson said, the Christian is someone who learns to laugh when there are tears in their eyes. The gospel gives you a defiant joy because the gospel says on one hand, your life is going to be really hard, harder than you can expect because to follow Jesus is the way of the cross and the cross is a sign of death. And we live in a world under the curse of death. And it's not fully healed yet. So your work and your relationships and your life is going to be really hard. And hardness and sorrow and tears and death will not be the final word. But joy will come in the morning. Because death leads to life and the cross leads to resurrection. And Paul says, I can boast in the cross because what Jesus did three days later. And so right now today, when you go to work or when you have 
that conversation with a friend or whatever hardness you're facing. Death, sorrow, tears, evil, it's not the final word. Joy comes in the morning. And the gospel gives us a way to hold on to a defiant kind of joy, no matter what. So let's ask for that now as we pray and come into our time of response. Our gracious God, we thank you that you're with us right now. And so as we respond to you, as we respond to what you're saying to us, we pray that you'd help us to experience the gospel. Help us in this time of response to experience our boast in Jesus. Wherever we are, whatever we're carrying, whatever joys or profound pain that we brought into this place this morning, may the reality of Jesus' love and his death and his resurrection become the most real thing. May you give us new perspectives and a new posture and new motivations and a deeply defiant joy as we look to Jesus. So right now, by the power of your spirit, move in our midst. Accomplish your purposes. Enable us to see Jesus and to respond to you with surrender and love. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.